Therefore, today, I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. This is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in Los Angeles. Elsewhere in California on KFOI Red Bluff Redding, KKRM Round Mountain, KGOE Eureka. In Oregon on KYAQ Central Coast, Queso Cottage Grove, and KEPW Eugene. Lancaster, Pennsylvania is WLRI. In Maui, Hawaii on KAKU. Columbus, Ohio, WGRN. Palinville, New York, WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan, WPRR. New Orleans, WHIV. Gallup, New Mexico, KNIZ. In Concord, New Hampshire on WNHN. Fayetteville, Arkansas, KPSQ. Seattle on KODX. Janesville, Wisconsin, W-A-D-R, Minneapolis, St. Paul, AM 950, KTNF, and coast to coast and around the globe, streaming on the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, Workforce Rising, Deprogrammed Radio, and Detour Talk, blanketing the globe five days a week. As usually hosted by Brad Friedman of bradblog.com. But today you have me, Angie Cuero of In Deep with Angie Cuero, heard on many of these same stations and streams. As you probably know, Nicole Sandler and I are covering the show while Brad and Desi deal with ongoing family matters. We are all thinking of you, you guys. Headlines today. Warren breaks out in a New Hampshire poll. A deal on gun laws may be dead in D.C. Trump kicks out toddler style at both California and his teenage Nobel-nominated nemesis, Oh. And, drum roll please, impeachment. Impeachment. Impeachment is the word du jour, the spirit of the moment, the all-too-late-but-still-welcome phenomenon that finally reached an irresistible drumbeat in Washington. Nancy Pelosi, under the relentless allegations and evidence that the White House occupant believes himself to be above the law, has announced the beginnings of impeachment. Finally, at last, none too soon, she said Trump, quote, must be held accountable. Last Tuesday, we observed the anniversary of the adoption of the Constitution on September 17th. Sadly, on that day, the intelligence community inspector general formally notified the Congress that the administration was forbidding him from turning over a whistleblower complaint on Constitution Day. This is a violation of law. Shortly thereafter, press reports began to break of a phone call by the President of the United States, calling upon a foreign power to intervene in his election. This is a breach of his constitutional responsibilities. The facts are these. The Intelligence Community Inspector General, who was appointed by President Trump, determined that the complaint is both of urgent concern and credible. And its disclosure, he went on to say, relates to one of the most significant and important of the Director of National Intelligence's responsibility to the American people. On Thursday, the Inspector General testified before the House Intelligence Committee, stating that the acting Director of National Intelligence blocked him 
from disclosing the whistleblower complaint. This is a violation of law. The law is unequivocal. The DNI staff, uh, it, it says the DNI, DNI, Director of National Intelligence, shall provide Congress the full whistleblower complaint. For more than 25 years, I've served on the Intelligence Committee as a member, as the ranking member, as part of the gang of four, even before I was in the leadership. I was there when, uh, when we created the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. That did not exist before 2004. I was there even earlier in the 90s when we wrote the whistleblower laws and continued to write them to improve them to ensure the security of our intelligence and the safety of our whistleblowers. I know what their purpose was, and we proceeded with balance and caution as we wrote the laws. I can say with authority the Trump administration's actions undermine both our national security and our intelligence and our protections of the whistleblowers, more than both. This Thursday, the acting DNI will appear before the House Intelligence Committee. At that time, he must turn over the whistleblower's full complaint to the committee. He will have to choose whether to break the law or honor his responsibility to the Constitution. On the final day of the Constitutional Convention in 1787, when our Constitution was adopted, Americans gathered on the steps of Independence Hall to wait the news of the government our founders had crafted. They asked Benjamin Franklin, what do we have, a republic or a monarchy? Franklin replied, a republic if you can keep it. Our responsibility is to keep it. Our republic endures because of the wisdom of our Constitution, enshrined in three co-equal branches of government, serving as checks and balances on each other. The actions taken to date by the President have seriously violated the Constitution, especially when the President says, Article 2 says, I can do whatever I want. For the past several months, we have been investigating in our committees and litigating in the courts so the House can gather all the relevant facts and consider whether to exercise its full Article I powers, including a constitutional power of the utmost gravity, approval of articles of impeachment. And this week, the President has admitted to asking the President of Ukraine to take actions which would benefit him politically. The the actions of the Trump presidency revealed dishonorable fact of the President's betrayal of his oath of office, betrayal of our national security, and betrayal of the integrity of our elections. Therefore, today, I'm announcing the House of Representatives moving forward with an official impeachment inquiry. I'm directing our six committees to proceed with their investigations under that umbrella. What may have been the last straw? All right, we have plenty of suspects here, but what may have been the last straw was the op-ed by seven freshman lawmakers who consulted with Pelosi before they submitted their piece to the Washington Post. The opinion piece called for impeachment. Representative Mike Sherrill, Democrat of New Jersey, confirmed to MSNBC that the conversation with Pelosi did take place. We did tell Nancy Pelosi that we were going to release this in the morning um, to to make sure that she was aware of our position and how we felt about this. This, you know, none of us ran on impeaching the president. 
I ran to lower health care costs to get the Gateway Tunnel Project funded to make sure that we have a fair tax system in New Jersey. These are things that people in my district care very deeply about. However, people in my district also know I'm a Navy veteran, that I've served this country my entire life, and I certainly won't stand by as the president tries to undermine our Democratic elections. But to a follow-up question about what specifically Nancy Pelosi said, she gracefully sidestepped. Of course, the actual last straw is hard to put a finger on. It may have been the accumulated weight of voices instead. Check out all of these. First, Senator Macy Hirono of Hawaii on MSNBC. We are not in normal times when you have a president who lies to the American people every single day and doesn't think that the rule of law applies to him. Sure, he'll stand there and say, I did nothing wrong. That's because he truly doesn't think he does anything wrong with that. He can break the law. An impeachment inquiry is what we need. Frankly, I don't care what he believes. All I know is that one thing he does believe is that the rule of law doesn't apply to him. Now, obviously, we're listening to a woman here who is not holding back as she speaks with Katie Tour. You know, the whistleblower protection statute is very clear on its face. And what was supposed to happen after the IG determined that there was an urgent concern being expressed by the whistleblower and that uh, it was credible, supposed to go to the, the director of national intelligence, who had no discretion. He's supposed to turn it over to the intelligence committee. But what does he do? No, he doesn't do that. He goes to the attorney general, attorney general Barr, whose goal in life is to support and protect this president. And so what happens? You have the Office of Legal Counsel in the Attorney General's office saying, no, you don't have to follow the law. What is this? It's very blatant. We need to get to the bottom of it. And the way you do that is to begin an impeachment inquiry. And again, with the no-holds-barred attitude. I'm not surprised that the administration is trying to negate what the whistleblower has come up with. I'm not surprised at all because the president, Katie, cares about two things protecting his, as we say in Hawaii, okole, and money. Those are the two driving forces for him. And right now, he's just so intent on protecting himself. He'll do and say anything. And apparently, he has an administration uh, who is perfectly willing to go along with him. Maisie Hirono. Now, she's a long way from alone, of course. Beto O'Rourke talked to the Texas Tribune with his take. Donald Trump is the president of the United States, and we want him to be successful uh, especially as it pertains to supporting our service members and conducting our foreign policy and the wars that we wage, as it pertains to meeting the commitments that we have to our veterans, those who've borne the battle coming back from those wars, on those things where we might be able to agree, uh, an infrastructure spending program that'll put millions of Americans, hundreds of thousands potentially of Texans, uh, back to work. And so I will try to find common ground where we have common cause. But his mendacity... Uh, his lies to the American people, whether it's about Mexican immigrants being rapists and criminals, whether it's about three million quote-unquote illegals uh, voting uh, unlawfully in the last election, whether it's the potential collusion with the country of Russia or the obstruction of justice at the highest levels, uh, the effort to intimidate those who are investigating and following the facts, and his tacit approval and, I would argue, even encouragement of those same white nationalists who are marching in Charlottesville, Virginia, I do not believe that he is fit to lead this country. He then said it can't be done without the GOP, but he didn't express any optimism that is about to happen. Okay, my money says that what truly sealed the deal is John Lewis's call for action from the House floor. 
This man is the granddaddy of justice. This is the voice of power, of reason, and passion. This is a man you cannot ignore. The people have a right to inquire. They have a right to know. The people have a right to know whether they can put their faith and trust in the outcome of our election. They have a right to know whether the cornerstone of our democracy was undermined by people sitting in the White House today. They have a right to know whether a foreign power were asked to intervene in the 2020 election. They have a right to know whether the president is using his office to line his pockets. Mr. Speaker, the people of this nation realize that if they had committed even half of the possible violation, the federal government would be swift to seek justice. We cannot delay. We must not wait. Now is the time to act. I have been patient while we tried every other path and used every other tool. We will never find the truth unless we use the power given to the House of Representatives and the House alone to begin an official investigation as dictated by the Constitution. The future of our democracy is at stake. There come a time when you have to be moved by the spirit of history to take action to protect and preserve the integrity of our nation. I believe, I truly believe, the time to begin impeachment proceedings against this president has come. To delay or to do otherwise would betray the foundation of our democracy. And it sounds like, at last, he will not be ignored. The walls are falling, the die is cast. Fill in your favorite cliche here. It is on. So, where's Joe Biden in all of this? He went on record saying that if Trump keeps stonewalling on Ukraine, impeachment is the way to go. Standing by to see what he says in the wake of Pelosi's announcement. Trump, of course, with his usual limited vocabulary, had this to say. I think it's ridiculous. It's a witch hunt. Uh, I'm leading in the polls. They have no idea how they stop me. The only way they can try is through impeachment. This has never happened to a president before. There's never been a thing like this before. It's nonsense. And when you see the call, when you see the readout of the call, which I assume you'll see at some point, you'll understand. That call was perfect. It couldn't have been nicer. And even the Ukrainian government put out a statement that that was a perfect call. There was no pressure put on them whatsoever. But there was pressure put on with respect to Joe Biden. What Joe Biden did for his son. Speaking of Trump, his speech to the U.N. was truly troubling, not so much for its content, but for its delivery. It was it was weird. Listen to this. The most profound contribution anyone can make. Lift up your nations, cherish your culture, honor your histories, treasure your citizens, make your country strong and prosperous and righteous, honor the dignity of your people, and nothing will be outside of your reach. When our nations are greater, the future will be brighter, our people will be happier, and our partnerships will be stronger. With God's help together, we will cast off the enemies of liberty and overcome the oppressors of dignity. 
We will set new standards of living and reach new heights of human achievement. We will rediscover old truths, unravel old mysteries, and make thrilling new breakthroughs. And we will find more beautiful friendship and more harmony among nations than ever before. My fellow leaders, the path to peace and progress and freedom and justice and a better world for all humanity begins at home. Thank you. God bless you. God bless the nations of the world. And God bless America. Thank you very much. Okay, as you can hear, he's mumbling. His words are without affect or meaning. Physically, his eyes were tiny little slits, and he had exactly two postures, one after the other and back to the first. One where he looked to the left, where apparently one of his teleprompters was, and I'm guessing there was one positioned exactly opposite that on the right, because that's the only other place he looked. So he had that pronounced squint with an eerie monotone, with that odd absence of any meaning behind the words. He droned through his presentation. And that's completely at odds with the guy who spoke of a beautiful phone call with Ukraine, who pointed at a reporter who dared to ask about the whistleblower issue and snarled, be quiet. And he vehemently rails about witch hunts. This is a different guy. This is unsettling. Or maybe it's just a guy who can't be bothered to pre-read the speeches that come out of his mouth. Hey, speaking of railing, Trump exhibited his usual Twitter maturity today, snarking at climate activist Greta Thunberg about her bright future to, quote, she seems like a very happy young girl looking forward to a bright and wonderful future. So nice to see. Of course, she's smarter and mentally older than him. She promptly adopted his words as her profile, quote. Fox, not really the news, has apologized for one attack on Thunberg, but they left another one standing. As reported by CNN, quote, Fox apologized to Swedish climate activist Greta Thunberg Monday night for a guest's comments during a segment earlier that evening. Conservative pundit Michael Knowles brought up Thunberg, the 16-year-old activist, during a conversation on the story with Martha McCollum about a Bloomberg editorial piece on giving up meat. Quote, none of that matters because the climate hysteria movement is not about science. If it were about science, it would be led by scientists rather than by... It is led by scientists. It's led by scientists. If it were about science, it would be led by scientists rather than by politicians and a mentally ill Swedish child who's being exploited by her parents and by the international left, Knowles said. The Fox says there are no plans to book him again. CNN goes on to note, quote, The Fox News segment is far from the only hateful commentary Thunberg has received while advocating for climate action. Last week, conservative author and filmmaker and convicted felon Dinesh D'Souza compared Thunberg to Nazi propaganda. Former White House aide Seb Gorka tweeted, quote, The adults who brainwash this autistic child should be brought up on child abuse charges. They're all charming, aren't they? There is no lack of charm on the right. But now... Fox has not apologized for its mean girl-in-chief, Laura Ingram, who compared Thunberg to Stephen King villains, children of the climate, as she says, while she characterized news clips of Thunberg as chilling and saying the adults who brainwashed these kids should be brought up on charges of child abuse. Now, her own brother called her out on Twitter, but that is not a big surprise. He's also called her, as reported in the Washington Post, 
a monster, a Nazi sympathizer, and a racist. Pick the one honest person in this family. So with all of this going on, you would not think Trump would have time to unleash on his other favorite punching bag, the Golden State of California. But there's always time to hippie bash. This time he is sticking the EPA on CA because of our air quality issues. That is coming up next on the Bradcast. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100% independent, 100% listener supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate. That's bradblog.com slash donate. And thanks. It's the Bradcast. I'm Angie Cairo in for Brad today. More news pouring over the wires and digital streams. Elizabeth Warren keeps climbing in the polls. This is from Politico. New polling conducted since the last Democratic presidential primary shows Elizabeth presidential primary debate, that should be, shows Elizabeth Warren and Joe Biden separating from the pack and notably from Bernie Sanders in three key early voting states. A Monmouth University poll conducted in New Hampshire, released Tuesday, gives Warren a two-point lead over Biden, 27% to 25%, well within the margin of error, it does note. Going on, Sanders, who trounced Hillary Clinton in New Hampshire in 2016, is a distant third, just 12%. He's followed by Pete Buttigieg, 10%, Kamala Harris of California, with only 3%. The results, it says, closely resembles last week's Des Moines Register CNN Mediacom poll in Iowa, which also showed Warren narrowly ahead of Biden, with Sanders and Buttigieg well behind the two front runners. We move over to New York's Metropolitan Opera for a Me Too moment with Placido Domingo. This is just in from the New York Times. In an 11th hour reversal, the superstar Domingo withdrew from the Metropolitan Opera's production of Verdi's Macbeth and indicated he would not return to the Met, amid rising tensions over how the company was responding to allegations he had sexually harassed multiple women. Mr. Domingo's withdrawal on the eve of the performance, opening night is Wednesday, came as a growing number of people who work at the Met expressed concerns about his planned appearance. Now, he's already been canceled, as the time notes, at the Philadelphia Orchestra and San Francisco's Opera. Domingo told the Times, here's his direct quote, I made my debut at the Met at the age of 27 and has sung at this magnificent theater for 51 consecutive glorious years. While I strongly dispute recent allegations made about me, and I am concerned about a climate in which people are condemned without due process, upon reflection, I believe my appearance in this production would distract from the hard work of my colleagues, both on stage and behind the scenes. There's more to that. You'll find it just in at the New York Times. Okay, back to impeachment, which, according to Politico, may be short-circuiting some legislature and some legislative talks, specifically in this case, an effort toward gun laws. Politico's piece reads in part, It had been five days since Chris Murphy had heard from Trump administration on negotiations over expanding background checks on gun sales. On the sixth day, the Connecticut Democrat endorsed an impeachment inquiry into President Donald Trump. The move sealed what many of Murphy's colleagues had long suspected, that gun negotiations have fallen apart 
and may be impossible to resurrect now that the vast majority of Democrats and a growing minority of Democratic senators are now calling for the president's impeachment. Lawmakers like to talk about walking and chewing gum at the same time, but Murphy acknowledges the march toward impeachment, quote, may temporarily be the end of the road for a lot of legislative initiatives, including his. Let's do talk more about the Donald, shall we? Trump continues to use the Environmental Protection Agency as a cat's paw to whack California upside the head. I'm over here. I can feel it. It's like a little baby earthquake. From the Washington Post, Trump administration officials threatened this week to withhold federal highway funding from California, arguing that the state has not shown what steps it's taking to improve its air quality. The move by the EPA escalates the fierce battle between President Trump and the left-leaning state and could put billions of federal funding in jeopardy. EPA Administrator Andrew Wheeler suggests the state has failed to carry out its most basic tasks under the Clean Air Act. At stake, the EPA said, are billions of dollars in federal highway funding every year. Federal officials do have the right to halt that money, the article notes if they determine a state is not taking sufficient steps to show how it aims to cut air pollution. Okay, so Gavin Newsom was ready for this. The governor calls all of this a brazen stunt, a threat of pure retaliation, and issued this statement. While the White House tries to bully us and concoct new ways to make our air dirtier, California is defending our state's clean air laws from President Trump's attacks. Well, yeah, This is the guy who wants to get rid of California's lower emission laws while saying our air isn't clean enough. Okay. To resume Newsom's statement, quote, we won't go back to the days when our air was the color of mud. We won't relive entire summers when spending time outside amounted to a public health risk. All right. Why does Donald Trump hate California more than any other state in the union? Why does he go out of his way to bash, punish, whine about, rail over us again and again? Last week, I interviewed Justin Frank. He's the author of of a book that parses the inner workings of Trump's ego and id. I presumably showered a lot during the research phase. I have the kind permission of KGO Radio in San Francisco, where I held that conversation, to bring you highlights of it. So here you go. Donald Trump hates California. Now, he will come to California and get buckets of money very quietly in dark places where people don't want to be seen. But out in public, gosh, we're horrendous. We're evil. We're sick. Our homeless people are the worst homeless people. Our best people probably don't belong here and they're being abused by the homeless people. I mean, good Lord. There are plenty of discussions to be had, and we're going to have part of it this hour, too. What the heck is wrong with Donald Trump in general? But particularly looking at the beginning of this hour as to what this obsession he has with California, what does that tell us about him? And I don't want to just speculate, because I'm not into speculating. I thought we'll go to a professional. What ho, there is a professional on the telephone. And Justin Frank You know him from his various couch books, Bush on the Couch and Obama on the Couch. And now we have Trump on the Couch. And the guy who takes a very serious look at the minds of our leaders is an author who practices and teaches psychoanalysis in Washington, D.C. He spent time as a clinical professor of psychiatry at the George Washington Medical University University Medical Center. And now he's again on KGO. Justin Frank, welcome back. Thank you for joining me again. Thanks. I'm glad to be here again. 
Let me ask you, when you look at Donald Trump's hatred, his deep, deep hatred and his constant slamming of California, maybe I'm overly sensitive because I'm a Californian. Does it stand out to you as well that he just has a special loathing just for us? Yes, he does. Uh, It stands out to me as well. And actually, I'm a native Californian myself. And uh, although I live in Washington, a Berkeley grad. Oh, you're a Um, Berkeley and he hates you even more, you hippie. I know. He hates me for lots of different reasons. Uh, (laughs) But I am from California. I am a Berkeley grad. And I knew a lot of movie stars as a kid because I grew up in Hollywood. So there you have it. The issue for Trump is one of the basic sources of hatred for most all of us at times is envy. We hate something we can't have for ourselves, and we need to either put it down or even destroy it or spoil it. It's an attack on goodness. Mm -hmm. It's been most obvious before Hollywood that or before California, how much he hated and envies Obama. Yes. He has to spoil every single thing that Obama has ever accomplished. He goes out of his way to undo any regulation, including the current, some of the good regulations about uh, <clears throat> car emissions and things in California. Any of the things that Obama has accomplished, he wants to spoil and undo. Any treaties, any organizations, every single thing. It does not matter. Now, the sources of that has to do, I mean, at first a lot of people would think it's about racism, and there's a racist quality to it, but it's also about an attack on the good. It hates, he hates people who are good because they're better than him. He's not good, and he knows it. Does he know so it? Talking- I, one of the things about ego, ego is a fascinating thing. Because he certainly does seem to be full of ego, and yet there's that contradictory impression that he knows he's not what he builds himself up to be. Right. It's a compensatory – what people talk about is malignant narcissism, which I've also written about. That's compensatory for feeling weak and inadequate and unloved. So now we can go – he didn't need Obama's love. He just hated Obama's goodness and the fact that Obama was loved. But going to California, he has been rejected by California several times. He's tried to be in movies, and he could only get bit parts in the 70s and 80s. He uh, bought a bunch of uh, places and properties in Southern California, hoping to make his mark there, and he never did. And he put on an addition uh, to the Ambassador Hotel in L.A., which is where the Coconut Grove was, the famous Coconut Grove. And so he really has tried to make inroads into California. And in a way, he had a similar problem in California to the problem he had in New York. Uh, There's a thing in New York uh, where people who are wealthy, cultured, educated, they call people who come come into the bridge – members of the Bridge and Tunnel Club. Those are people, Bridge and Tunnel Crowd. Mm -hmm. Those are people who want to be included 
in uh, New York society. Trump was always seen as uh, part of the bridge and tunnel crowd. His accent was uncouth. He's very uneducated. He can't have a conversation about anything in a meaningful way. So he was always excluded. California is very similar to him, to that, to, uh, to the, uh, for him, and that he feels very excluded and he can't, uh, and, and really not liked. Um, and the people in California who are stars, uh, they they don't love him. And I think that it really is based on a kind of envious hatred. Um, he he wrote a book which is not very much read uh, called The Art of the Comeback. Uh, and it's really uh, – and he went on a book tour – and it was uh, very much uh, on morning shows, a Hollywood star, um, and he was telling his story about a star who loses his glitter and comes back. Mm. And and Trump was really uh, wrote about that as if it was about him and he was going to come back by being a star in Hollywood, which is what he did come back in some to some extent with The Apprentice, but basically. The real people who make comebacks, and this is where, where we can come back and dovetail to envy. The real people who make comebacks have a quality that Trump does not have, and that is humility and forgiveness. He is unable to be humble. And forgiveness, he's actually un, he doesn't forgive anybody who's hurt him. He wants to strike back and destroy them. How is someone who is this emotionally crippled, how then is he so, at least on the face of it, successful? He is ostensibly the leader of the free world. He has a ton of money. He seems to be pretty darn successful. Well, he he does seem to be successful, and he is president of the United States. I mean, what could be more successful than being president of the United States? I mean, he really is, and he has a lot of people um, who also – share with him a certain kind of narcissistic injury. And those are the people who are at his rallies, who have also felt left out, passed by. They'll never go to Hollywood. They'll never be glamorous. They'll never be rich. They won't be that well-educated. And they've been passed by, and they feel injured by the politicians in Washington and the way Trump must have felt injured and I write in my book, felt injured as a child because he felt that his parents may have told him that they loved him, but he was never held, never cuddled, and he never really felt loved. So he ended up compensating by loving himself. I but think you just actually succeeded mean... in making me feel sorry for this guy. Right. Well, don't get too sorry for him because he's very destructive. But he really did need to be loved and loved himself. And so what's happened is he um, uh, has really uh, found a group of people, a lot of them, who have felt similarly, similarly to him, that they felt excluded, they felt marginalized. Uh, people uh, who work hard, who go to church, who have families, but who really have felt marginalized, haven't had good education, haven't had good jobs. And he taps into their resentment and their injury, sense of injury, and he becomes adored because they feel understood by him. Mm. It's almost like they can see him 
he can see them. He can see himself in their eyes. Let's put it that way. They can mirror him. He never had that kind of experience as a child, but he does as an adult in his rallies. He really can feel increased and, uh, and uh, increased in size and power and impact uh, through the audience that he uh, deals with. So his celebrity comeback is like uh, how he uh, inspires people and other people feel they can be rich. They can have a comeback. They can do what he's done. And only he did it really because of the TV show, mostly the apprentice mm. um, and where he was reading from a script. People feel inspired by somebody who speaks plain language, who doesn't use fancy words, who is able to uh, just say whatever he feels and, um, and one of the things that he's done with California in particular is um, he's called it uh, phony and fake and dishonest. And I think that he really does envy it. He envies the fact that people are doing well there. People are generally happy there. People have sunshine there. It's also people the home of many celebrities who are very vocal people, about that. There's life. lots of real genuine celebrities there who are really loved. Mm-hmm. And – and the, and the people didn't vote for him, and they would never vote for him. Um, and so I think that his rate, he would like to spoil their goodness, and that's why he would like to poison them with uh, increasing poison fumes. It's uh, it's like a creative flatulence from cars that he wants to fart in um, in California atmosphere um, and to spoil it, uh, spoil the city. The spoil of cities. Justin Frank, author of Trump on the Couch, will go into more right after this on the broadcast. Hi, this is Desi Doyen from the Green News Report and the broadcast, both brought to you without corporate or political influence. Why? Because we rely on you to help keep us completely independent. Please drop by bradblog.com slash donate today and help us stay on your public airwaves. That's bradblog.com slash donate. You'll thank yourself later. I'll thank you now. It's the broadcast. I'm Angie Cuero in the midst of a conversation I had with Justin Frank last week on KGO San Francisco. Here is more. Well, so let's do go to this question. We always hear that it is unethical for a doctor who has not examined a person personally to make projections or to make, you know, issue edicts about what their mental health is. Can you address that? Well, I think it's a very important question, and it has been unethical. Uh, certainly, uh, it was um, uh, adopted as a lack of ethics in 1965 after uh, a group of psychiatrists were polled about whether uh, Barry Goldwater was stable enough when he was running for president against LBJ, whether he was stable enough to have his finger on the nuclear button. And this group of psychiatrists who were polled said no. And then he lost the election, Goldwater lost the election, not because of that probably, but what happened was they sued the American Psychiatric Association, and he won a a judgment of, I think, $75,000. And what happened is the APA set up these rules 
write about a person you haven't treated or seen. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that, A, you can't write about a person once you have treated them because it's confidential. So that argument doesn't make sense. And having a one-time psychiatric evaluation, you're not going to learn a lot about a patient or a person that way. I mean, I'm a psychoanalyst. I do intensive work. Now, as far as treating somebody uh, who um, I have not seen personally, there's a process called applied psychoanalysis, which is a very distinguished, well-known process that was started by Freud and many followers, where they did intensive investigations of people who uh, you could never get in your consulting room, like uh, uh, famous people, public figures, uh, historical people. Freud analyzed several historical people, and in doing the analysis, it wasn't like just suddenly making things up. It was spending months and months and months of researching everything about the person, looking for patterns, looking for different kinds of behaviors. I took two years to write this book. Mm-hmm. I wrote something about this book. Uh, I wrote something years before I even started the book about I just ran across it about how Trump is dangerous, was a dangerous person to the country when he talked about vaccines causing um, autism. With that, you just and I got to ask you to hold off just a second because the clock is way behind here. We are going right to the phone lines. I told John in Pleasant Hill to hang on. So, John, with that, you get to start us off. Good evening. Yeah, I'm here. Uh, Well, I guess the first thing, uh, when you use the word hate, uh, hating California, that's a very, very uh, severe word to use. And uh, I don't think he really hates California or Californians, but I think he's, like I, am very disappointed in seeing the socialistic tendencies uh, that California is gravitating toward. Uh, Things such as, uh, you know, uh, sanctuary cities, where these cities will not release uh, criminals uh, who've uh, committed severe crimes to ICE so that we can deal with them appropriately. They're not going after the average illegal immigrant. They just want the the lawbreakers, the murderers, the rapists, and that sort of thing. Do you feel like that's what Donald Trump is? Is that what Donald Trump is? I mean, I've never heard him articulate that clearly. Well, he's never articulated the fact that he's uh, a hater. He's not a hater. He doesn't like behavior. And you know what? I don't particularly like Trump's personality either. Let's let Justin get a word in here because I'm sure he's got a lot to comment on. I have a couple of thoughts about it. I think hate is the right word. I think that anybody who tries to separate mothers from children hates families. I think that it is cruel to separate mothers from children, to put children in cages like he's doing. I think that is the word, the proper word is hate. The proper word is cruel. If you listen to what he talks about, if anybody strikes me, I'm going to hit them back 10 times harder. I want to elbow them. I want to destroy them. I want to destroy Obama. I don't think that's about socialism. It's not about a belief. It's about hate. It's very personal with him, and he's always been like this. He threw rocks at a five-year-old boy in a playpen. Uh, he has a history of, be, of violently attacking people uh, who he dislikes and hates. 
it's very clear to me. It's always been this way about him, and I think that he is comfortable uh, expressing those feelings, which gives people a lot of relief because a lot of people have similar feelings of rage, aggression, hurt, and I think that he has tapped into a feeling that exists in a lot of us. But when he was talking about the people coming across the border or wanting to ban all Muslims, that's not about socialism. That's about racism. And yeah, with that, we uh, need to The take- Muslims are not socialists. The Muslims are brown-skinned people. Um, it is, this is a man who, uh, you know, with, with the apprentice, what he initiated was the concept of anger as entertainment. Um, and it was a very powerful thing he did. And, um, and, and I think that unconsciously, uh, he really felt lied to by his parents when they told him how much they loved him. If you could want to read my book, which it really is very detailed about his childhood, about his uh, behavior and uh, throughout his life, uh, the word is hate. That doesn't mean that all of his followers hate the same way he does. Dr. Richard, who is calling in San, San Rafael. Hi, Dr. Richard. Hello. Hi. Uh I'm enjoying the psychoanalyst analytic uh, view. I think you're eloquent in the way you talk about it. I find it refreshing. I'm a clinical psychologist. However, what I don't hear is a reference to what Freud called the oceanic feeling and what Jung called the participation mystique. That uh, I'm not saying that I'm for Trump uh, or anything like that. But I do see a dynamic where there's the ganging up, the herd mentality that at all cost must see him uh, as the devil, so to speak. And I think that's also compensatory amongst those progressives who would have, uh, who would have to see him that way uh, for something compensatory that's there. Also about lack, I'd like you to comment on that because I'm concerned with that one-sidedness. Oh, I think that's a great uh, comment and very important. Uh, I didn't start out being one-sided in particular, although I did not like some of the things that he said, which I felt were inflammatory and destructive, first about Mexicans Mm. coming across the border, and then even about telling parents that they shouldn't vaccinate their children. Uh, Mm. That was pretty outrageous to me as a physician. I think that uh, the oceanic feeling, he gets a feeling that Freud wrote about, it's a feeling of oneness with the world that's very common and important uh, as a part of adolescence, that people who are adolescent uh, can feel uh, this incredible connection with the cosmos, with the universe. And I think that that's something that gets repressed and not really fully experienced in adulthood. And now, with all the divisiveness and what's going on, it's very hard to get in touch with those kinds of positive feelings and those kinds of overwhelming connected feelings. I think that Trump recreates those feelings at his rallies. I think that his rallies are extremely special. They're extremely oceanic. And there's a reverberation between him and his audience that is very much like uh, 
they can see themselves in his eyes and he can see himself in their eyes. And it's very much the way uh, infants and mothers interact, which is that the baby can look at the mother and the and see itself in its mother's eyes because the mother smiles in response to it and all of that. And the beginning of an oceanic experience has to do with those very early life uh, times. I think that people who are uh, angry at Trump, I do think that anger is compensatory. I agree with you to some extent. I think it's compensatory to cover over fear. I think a lot of people are afraid of how uh, they see him as being destructive, uh, the way he uh, dehumanizes the people he criticizes by calling about infestations and vermin and uh, all of those things. Those are dehumanizing, and they're not oceanic. They're anti-oceanic. And then he becomes oceanic in his rally, so he can do both. And it's a very powerful thing. I think he is a compellingly powerful leader. Uh, And Mm. psychologically, he's adept at uh, connecting with people who have felt uh, rightly or wrongly, and often rightly, who have felt injured and hurt and um, uh, in their lifetimes. And so I do think there's a lot of that. The feeling that that is the the danger uh, that people who are angry at him, they feel that he's dangerous to the Constitution, that he essentially says, I'm not going to, if Congress won't give me money, I'm just going to get it from the Pentagon and the hell with Congress uh, for the wall. Um, he, uh, they feel that he's dangerous, and my feeling is that he attacks reality and attacks truth. So when he drew that map about Alabama, that's a visual attack on reality, and it is not just a simple compensatory action. There's a hatred of truth. Justin, and I, I want to give uh, Richard a chance to, to get one more sure. comment in because we need to move sure, on. Thank you. Sorry. Well, first of all, I, I appreciate uh, me, the meeting of the ways that you're allowing uh, my critique. I appreciate yes. that many times this show can turn into a polarized circumstance. No, no. My, my con- my con- which makes you a good psychoanalyst. Um, <laughs> so my concern Man. there is the oceanic feeling of the one-sidedness also occurs, for example, with the one percenters and the 99 percenters, where the motivation there is to, to excel, I would say survivor guilt, for example, to excel, to do well, is something that implicit in that is uh, a pejorative or something wrong. And so then one has to then level oneself to the least common I think that's a great question. Yeah, I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, go ahead, Justin. The one percenters do want to excel. The feeling that other people might have about that is that they do it at the expense of others, not necessarily only because uh, they're very smart and competent. Uh, Trump didn't pay his bills forever for most people. He he stiffed all the people who worked for him. I actually have a friend who uh, did the electrical – I couldn't use this in the book because it's a personal story, but I could say it on the radio, I guess. I have a friend who – uh, did the lighting for the Taj Mahal uh, in in uh, in Atlantic City, his big gambling casino, mm-hmm. and he know, knew he's a New Yorker and he's an elect- 
electronics expert, and he knew about how Trump doesn't pay his bills because Trump will just pay a third down, and then he'll never pay the other two-thirds. So this uh, friend of mine uh, raised his uh, rates uh, 300%, and so when Trump paid him a third down, he was actually paying him all that he had expected to get if Trump had paid the full amount. It is such a New York story. It's a great New York story. So he actually – he is the only businessman I know personally who never got hurt by Trump. So I think that it's it's a complicated thing, and it's scary to have this person as president. I agree with you that one of the problems about one percenters and 99 percenters, it risks the dehumanization of the other group whatever the other group is, and that I think you're very on to something very powerful, which is that one of the dangers of the people who oppose Trump, and I've really uh, felt very uncomfortable about the degree of uh, the pathology that he shows, because one of the dangers is that I could become a way of just seeing him in a one-sided way and dehumanizing him. And um, that happens whenever there are, is more than one group. There's the out group or the other and the in group. And Justin, so, let's, uh, let, let me scooch on to some phone calls here because we, we got a ton sure, of calls I'm here. Sorry. I'm not at all. On here. Yeah, I can't wait till I have you here live because you and I are going to go on at great length. <laughs> Richard, thank you for your call. And with that, we're going to move on down to Los Gatos so that we can talk to Leo. Hi, Leo. Thanks for waiting. Hi. Um, Hi. You know, I feel completely different. I think that California is the best thing that's ever happened for Trump. Uh, it allows him to have a protagonist. He can't be a hero unless he has an enemy. And oftentimes, California plays into the role of being an enemy um, perfectly. I think that's a great point, actually. I think that it's not that, uh, that California is a protagonist to Trump, though. California is an antagonist to Trump. Um, and I think that he does need to have an enemy. Um, and one of the things that is, is so important for him is that, in that sense, California is not that different from Obama or from Mexicans or from uh, Muslims. Uh, it's, not, it's an enemy the enemy of the swamp people in in Washington, D.C., or the elites. These, he, he lives through enemies and creating enemies, and that's one of his strengths. He's able to make the people he talks to feel connected to him, and the other people are the enemy. And in that sense, California is very good for Trump because it's an obvious enemy writ large, except making an enemy of the people who have the biggest voting block in the country is not always uh, prudent. Uh, But I do think that unconsciously there is a need to have an enemy. Um, And when children uh, develop, when they're about two, three, four years old, they start thinking about, is this a good person or a bad person? Are you a good guy or are you a bad guy? It's a way kids have of organizing their world because their world is a bit chaotic and confusing. So they organize their mind into in and out, black and white, either or. And Trump is an expert at using that part of our psyches, mine included, all of us have that. Is that intuitive or is that studied? What? Is that intuitive or is it studied on his part? 
I think it's intuitive on his part. I actually think that he is amazingly intelligent intuitively. And I do think that he has got a kind of intelligence that, uh, uh, I don't know if it's unique, but it is unusual. And it is an, his ability to tap into the hurts and needs of people to divide their world into good and bad, black and white. The press is the enemy of the people. It's about enemies. And in that sense, I agree with you that he's made a great California's a perfect foil for him. But I do think that foil in his case from analyzing him and getting to know him over the last few years uh, very intensely is uh, driven by his envy. That's Justin Frank, author of Trump on the Couch, the third of his couch books. Thanks again to KGO San Francisco for permission to bring you these excerpts. And that is a wrap for today's installment of the broadcast. Nicole Sandler will usher you through the agonies and joys of tomorrow's news. Please do keep checking in on the website to send your best to Brad and Desi. We'll see you soon. Until then, good luck, world. Good luck, world.